What is going on, everybody? We are sitting here tonight with Sean Duffy as our guest. This is our 15th podcast. Hard to believe we already went that many deep into it this year. Uh, so we want to say thank you to Sean Duffy for sitting down with us to start. So we're just going to kick it right off. We're going to get into a little brief intro here for him. So Sean, you are a firefighter at Wyandotte, Michigan. Uh, you want to tell us about your time there, what position you, you are, uh, and how long you've been there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm fairly new. Uh, in the city uh, since April. Uh, I uh, <clears throat> This year, 17 years in the fire service for me. So, um, you know, one of the things that I say pretty consistently with everything is family comes first. And uh, I truly believe that. So when my wife um, had some health issues with her mother and she was going through all that thing, she spent some quite a bit of time up in Michigan with her. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, she was placed on hospice care and when all that went down, my wife, uh, she just needed to be home with her mom and, and she, she couldn't really see being anywhere else. So we made the decision to, to kind of hit that reset button and uh, I didn't think twice about it. Didn't really know what I was going to do once I got here. Just kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. And uh, luck would have it that the, uh, the city of Wyandotte contacted me uh, before I even moved out of the state of Florida and uh, set me up for an interview. So on my birthday, uh, back in February, I interviewed and they offered me the position. So um, yeah, entry level firefighter there, uh, you know, low guy, low guy on the totem pole, but it's a great place. Uh, two station department, about six square miles. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, you know, work with a lot of good people. Uh, got an awesome fire chief who, who really uh, values uh, everybody. And, and their opinions and, and kind of gives us the leeway to, to do what we need to do, what we feel is best. Uh, so I can't say anything, anything bad about it. You know, um, he's, a, he's very, very supportive. You know, when I first got there, they had, uh, they had pike poles on there and I had just gotten a Lockwood hook. So uh, they kind of asked some questions about it. Now you look at it uh, seven months later, all of our pike poles are gone. We got all Lockwood hooks on the engine. We got all char tools on the engine. Um, you know, he's just very progressive and he's like, if this is what, what's going to work and be best for us and, and make us do our job better, let's do it. So I'm uh, proud to say too, that, uh, in that, in that whole journey, he, uh, he was on board with, with creating the policy for a uh, firefighter rescue survey. And, uh, you know, we're now on that list of participating fire departments. So, yeah, just a great place to be, man. It's an awesome time, and uh, I look forward to to what the future has to hold there. Nice. Do, do you guys jump there? Like, do you guys have two apparatus in your in your firehouse, and you jump from one to one? Yeah. So um, I am a paramedic. You know. Um, so what we do there is for med runs, we will roll out on the ambulance, and uh, for any fire runs, everybody rides out on the engine and the uh, the truck. So. Um, it's a nice little mix. You don't get uh, too too bored on doing one thing all the time, and uh, you know, lots of time to to sit there and uh, train and, and do all kinds of other things. So, um, you know, there's definitely worse things to have. Yeah, you could easily choose to look at the ambulance thing as a as a negative, um, but uh, you know, one of the things that that I, I truly believe in is whatever the situation you you're in, whether you do run that way or you don't, um, you know, we're professionals and we're supposed to be the best we can, no matter what run it is. So, uh, you know, that just gives you that extra opportunity to fine tune your skills where you need to. 
Excellent. Um, so you, you brought up the firefighter rescue survey um, with your little intro there. So uh, Nick and I know you and we know that you're very passionate about search. Can you kind of dive into the origins of that for us? Yeah. Um, well, for me, uh, you know, I started much just like everybody else. You know, I just kind of I'm, I'm doing what I was taught. Right. Um, and just kind of did that for many, many years. And I, I really didn't know better. I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. I had that basic knowledge of what I was given through the out through the academy or through what my company officers gave me. And over time, um, I just remember kind of sitting there and finding myself getting more and more frustrated, you know, like that these searches took way too long or we didn't do them. Um, you know, when I say they took too long, I mean, like when we would do them, they just took way too long to, to complete, you know. Um, but then the other side of that is time of when we actually were starting those searches. You know, I just felt like we were we were getting at it kind of late. And, uh, you know, we we had a couple fires where you know, we just didn't get there um, and prioritize that search as early as we probably could have. Would that have made a, a different outcome? I, I don't know. But, um, you know, it was just really unsettling for me to sit there and, you know, pull burnt bodies out now when I feel like, hey, what would have it been if, if we could have got in there, you know? 10 minutes before, you know? Um, so that led me to really just start digging into best practices. Uh, I started following uh, firefighter rescue survey, like digging deep into like their data, which uh, they were getting out, which definitely beneficial. And excuse me, while I was uh, going around at these conferences and talking to people throughout the country, Hey, what do you guys do? What works for you? And Man, it was a lot of trial and error, you know, trial and error, both at the firehouse training and then trial and error on the fire ground. Um, you know, you'll find out what works and what doesn't pretty quick on a fire. And, you know, it, it just all those things coupled together, taking the data, taking the failures of, of my own and, and my crews and, and things like that, and just putting it all together and saying like, hey, this is what makes sense. And uh, having the opportunity to get to do those and you see your success rate start to go up. Um, maybe not necessarily with finding victims, but getting in there and occupying spaces and getting a quick, you know, as thorough as you can search done and, and feeling confident that, you know, yes, that was a good time frame. Like we, we were all on the same page. You know, we, we were moving through there. It didn't take too long. Um, so that's kind of where all this was born out of. It was born out of frustration, mostly on my part. So um, I don't want any firefighters to feel that same way. So if I can do just a small part to pass on what I've learned to them, uh, that's the ultimate objective. Awesome. Thank you for passing that on. It's, uh, you know, the same origin with me. I, I became very interested in uh, firefighter rescue survey, you know, and trying to trying to make every myself better, you know, and then help help make others better, too. And luckily, people like, you know, uh, Ladine and Justin and, and all those guys kind of undertook that from the beginning. So <clears throat> um, moving on to the next thing. So you're uh, the co-founder of Build Your Culture. Go ahead and uh, tell us all what that's about. Yeah. Uh, so talking about going to conferences and stuff and and, talk, and working in departments. And um, I worked for Pasco County Fire. Uh, it's no secret that I worked there for, for a few years uh, with my buddy Pablo. Um, anybody who doesn't know, very large department, a lot of personnel there. 
Um, I think at the, as the last like evaluation of everything, they were like the sixth, uh, sixth busiest fire duty in the country. So definitely had an, an opportunity to go and practice a lot of what we were um, learning and, and things like that. Um, as far as the build your culture thing goes, Pablo and I were at the same firehouse, right? Um, he was on the truck company and, and I was bouncing around uh, between the medic and, and wherever else they needed me or, and uh, you know, it was, it was a fun time. It was a good time, but as, as any um, motivated, fired up firefighter would be, uh, you run through the frustration times of, you know, like, why, why do I feel like um, there's not as many people who, who are passionate or as passionate as, as I am, you know, and uh, it's, it's not a knock on anybody personally. It's just, you know, passion, passion, man, it drives everything. So when you're really, really super passionate about something, you're fired up and then you get some people that just don't care. And that could be incredibly frustrating. Um, so we're, we're sitting there at Orlando fire conference and we're just talking about it. We're like, man, like what happened to the fire service? You know, when, when I first started, everyone seemed like everybody was into the job, you know, they were proud to be there. They wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to get better. And, uh, you know, it just, it was a different time, you know, and it, not just in my own organization, just an observation as a whole throughout the country of what, what was going on. And long story short, we're sitting there and we said, well, man, what do we do? And Pablo says to me, uh, build your own culture. And that, that was kind of the light bulb that, that popped in our both heads. Like, Hey, we've been talking about, you know, um, doing training and, and putting under one label, you know, like, so that it, you know, people know, um, who's doing the training, who's putting it on things like that. And, um, when he said that, I said, that's it, man, that that's what it's about. Right. doesn't matter whether it's search or, you know, truck company stuff, or just treating people the right way. It just, it's all boils down to culture, our success and, and what we want and maybe what we don't want is going to be up to us to, to build that culture into our organization. So uh, we just chose to, to stick with that name and just kind of encompass it, uh, encompass it into everything that we do. And uh, you know, that's, that's what we believe in. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely not just a catchy phrase or anything. We, we truly believe in that. We try and live our own lives like that. Um, and, and we try and pass that on to, to whoever we can, you know, we get a lot of um, requests from people. Hey, I've got a question about culture and by no means are we, you know, experts in the matter. Uh, we just share our own opinions and experiences based off of, of our time in the fire service and, and hope that that helps somebody else kind of navigate through the waters of, of where they're at currently. So that, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Nice. Uh, something that I'm, I, uh, enjoy listening to. Can you tell us about, uh, the make do podcast, which you're a co-host of? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, kind of weird how that came up. Um, Nick Pepper, he runs the North Florida fire expo, really good dude. One of my best friends. And, um, he calls me up one night and he's like, I have this idea. I know you're really busy and you got all your own things going on, but, um, I would like to do this podcast. And I would like to try and keep it into like suburban firefighting, you know, uh, how we navigate through that kind of stuff. You know, what are the challenges and, and get people on our show who, who operate in that setting. And, um, I said, yeah, man, let's give it a shot. You know? So we started, um, we actually started with Steve green. He, he kind of helped us get up off the uh, ground with that through his five alarm task force podcast. 
And uh, Nick and I finally said, you know, let's let's do this on our own. Um, let's let's branch out and and just make it our thing. And we did. And it's man, we have some amazing guests on, some awesome conversations, uh, and it's just it, it's not always about suburban firefighting anymore, uh, which which we're okay with. It's it's really just you know, talking to people who love the job the same way and, and, you know, just going with the flow and, and we try and keep it unscripted for a reason. Um, you know, when we, when we go record, I'll ask you guys or something to be on the show and, uh, we don't really have any questions like, or anything. We're just talking, right? Like wherever the conversation leads us, we go and, uh, we try and keep it that organic, uh, and capture that raw emotion as much as possible. And, you know, it's a fun time. It, it's good. Uh, I think next month we're going to have uh, Chief Salka on. And then the month after we're going to have uh, Chief Avillo on. So, you know, definitely, definitely going strong. And, and it's, I, I've learned more from, from doing that podcast than I probably could in, in any classroom, just because you're, you're getting to talk to so many people and pick their brains. And it's in a very personal setting um, and private setting. So, um, you know, they're all yours for however long a podcast is going to just kind of get what you need out of it. And I think that's an incredible resource. So being able to record that and then pass it on to somebody uh, else, you know, for free so they can download it and listen to it. Uh, I think that's how we kind of help move that needle a little bit more forward in our fire service. Nice. Yeah. I've listened to it quite a few times. I, I, I enjoy the guests you guys have on and now I, feel kind of lame for having a uh, script <laughs> no 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 that's <laughs> not at all that was definitely not a stab at it just um, <laughs> you know i i we found that we would have questions and we wouldn't even we would just get so involved in the conversation that we wouldn't even look at it we'd be like oh damn we had like 10 questions we never asked a single one of them you know so we just decided hey the hell with it let's just keep going with that you know so yeah i uh so I always find it fun whenever I do this, these with Ladine. I'm a little bit more uh, ADD than he is, so I kind of bounce <laughs> around the place, you know. Yeah. Um. All right. So you're uh, an instructor with Task Force One. Uh, kind of tell us what you do there, uh, what, what programs you're with, and such. So Task Force One. Uh, that that's an interesting story in itself. <laughs> I was in uh, Oregon actually doing a class and. Uh, Ryan McCormick is wearing this sweatshirt and it says task force one. And I'm like, man, I, I've heard that name before, you know? So he's kind of tell me about it. I said, Oh man, then this is when I was like just starting to, to branch out into like teaching, you know, and, and get out of my comfort zone and, and go to other places other than like local and, and regional trainings. And um, he says, uh, yeah, are you interested? I said, of course. You know, so he hooked me up with uh, Ron Richards, who's the president of the company, and um, we had we had a phone conversation, fill out uh, the application, and he he gave me this list of of classes that I would be interested in teaching, and it's mostly engine company stuff, uh, engine company in the rule setting, uh, things like that, uh, some truck company work, you know, search and um, VES and all those things that that traditionally encompass that kind of uh, part of the fire service. And it's a blast, man. It's, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, I, I really enjoy working uh, for that company because there are so many, I think there's like 72 
people that, that instruct for that. Um, there might be more by now, but you know, you just, you get assigned a class, he'll email you or call you, Hey, are you available? You say, yeah, sure. You know, and then that's it. Like what you show up to is what you have, you know? So you, you really got to dig deep and, and, and pull these programs together and make it work with the, the uh, training environment that you're in, whether that be, Hey, we don't have a burn building. We only have an apparatus bay or, you know, Hey, we're not doing live fire. So you're going to have to make your scenarios work, you know, uh, with theatrical smoke or however you need to do it. Um, you just never know, you know, what you're going to wind up going into. So because of that, it, uh, I feel it, it makes you a better instructor because now you have to kind of think outside the box of how to provide this top-notch training with, you know, very little of what you're used to. And, uh, you know, coming together as a team with, with other guys that are there and making it work. And, and it's just at the end of it, it's just probably one of the most accomplishing things, you know, you just, you just feel like, man, we did it. And uh, the, the students that we go to, they're just, they're awesome. You know, they're so in tune with what's happening and they, and they want to be there, you know, and they want to just soak up every bit that they can from every instructor there. And, um, you know, it's, it's probably one of my, favorite things to do when Ron calls me and says, I have a class for you. Are you interested? Um, just, just because not only the people that I work with, but, uh, the, the students, you know, I, I've never been anywhere in this country at a task force one class where the students were like, yeah, I'm just here because I'm forced to be, you know, they're, they're engaged from the time it starts to the time it ends. And then afterwards they want more. And, uh, when, when you're in that kind of environment, man, it's just, you just realize like this, this is our purpose as fire service instructors right here. You know, this is the next generation of the, of the fire service that's going to lead us, you know, for the next 50 years. Um, and they are just, they're, they, they can't get enough, you know? So that that's pretty much about task force one um, and how I got started working there. All right. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen a lot of their classes pop up, you know, around the country, especially in that uh, like, Arkansas, like like Bryant, Arkansas, I think is where where Ryan is from. Yeah, I remember. <clears throat> so it seems like they do a lot of good things. Um, let's kind of talk about your involvement with the North Florida Fire Expo. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not on the team. <laughs> you know, I uh, I I kind of just uh, what three years ago now. Um, sitting there and and nick calls and he's putting on this conference for a, a member of his fire department who who has had some pretty significant medical issues and the the intent was to raise money and he did and it was awesome we're, we're sitting there at the end of the conference and um just kind of winding down from everything ten thousand dollar check here you go you know um and, and I just remember I, I got, I went up to him, I gave him a hug. I was like, Hey, congratulations, man. That's awesome. Good for you. You know, and just kind of telling him how, how impressed I, I am or I was with what he was able to put together and, and for the cause. And, um, you know, it just kept going and every year it gets bigger and better. Um, you know, the, the list of people coming out to speak and, and do hot classes is just phenomenal. You know, uh, if you look at it now, I mean, you've got some of the, the best in the fire service, in my opinion, uh, you know, just out there, Anthony Rowlett, you know, uh, OJ, 
I mean, the list goes on. I, I can, I can name them forever, but uh, just, you know, even the speakers, you know, if, if, if you don't want to take a hot class for whatever reason, uh, um, there's just something for everybody and the environment that's created while you're there, um, very comfortable, very personal um, or personable and, and family oriented, you know, lots of kids around there all the time. I think Nick was there uh, last year and, um, you know, he brought his family, my family was there. It just, it's just a really, really good time. It's on the beach, you know, you can't get better than that. And uh, it just, those three days of training are, are probably the most fun that uh, a, a newer or older firefighter in the fire service is going to have throughout the year, just because it's not just all business. You know, you, you work hard throughout the, the time that you're in training or you're in the classroom. And then afterwards there's social events and, and all kinds of things. So, you know, it's what Nick has been able to do with that. And I just, for a three-year conference, it, it's just crazy to me um, how well put together it is. Yeah. Th those people down in Florida and the whole Southeast are, uh, very blessed. I mean, you, you got the North Florida Fire Expo, you got Fort Lauderdale, you got Orlando, all five, the county fire tactics and, and, and more. I mean, Georgia has uh Mafsi, you know, I mean, yep. that place is just outstanding for, for fire training, in my opinion. Yeah. And I can tell you for, for spending majority of my career in Florida and if, <laughs> If, if you are into the job, Florida is one of the places you probably want to be. Um, it just, it seems like every weekend there's a training going on in that state. You know, there's just always something happening. The weather's generally pretty good. And, and the fellowship that you get is, is insane. You know, like you have two, 300 firefighters from all over the place, just coming in, into this place. And, um, Man, if, if you're, you know, going back to the culture thing, if you're in that spot where you're just like, man, the culture of my department is just beating me down. Man, going to any one of those conferences you just mentioned, I guarantee you, you'll, you'll be rejuvenated, you know, and, and that's just such an awesome resource to be able to tap into when you live there. Um, because, you know, let's face it travel expenses are pretty low and things like that. And then there's just so much talent. There's so much wisdom right there in your own backyard that you can just tap into, you know, and that's really, really awesome thing to have. Not, not too many people can say that they have that. Agreed. All right. Kind of, kind of, you know, now that we're done with the intro, finally, uh, we're going <laughs> to kick off on, on, on the actual questions here. So, as all of us are, are aware, passion and motivation are not universal. Uh, at times, even those that are really engaged into the job, uh, they feel their passion ebbing. Give any advice for our listeners on how to stay motivated during these peaks and valleys of their career? Yeah, it took me a long time to, to realize this, right? Um, you know, and I say this from not of a... Um, a standpoint of, I have the answer, but a standpoint of, Hey man, I've been there and I know how you feel. And, you know, sometimes I still find myself in that spot. The biggest thing is for me, which has helped me is remember why you're there. Okay. You got to understand that in the firehouse, we have so many different types of personalities, right? So 
we're not always going to agree on things, um, maybe tactics or, or, you know, whatever the conversation is. And, and that's okay. We can respect each other as individual individuals. We certainly can do that, but make no mistake about it. Um, we still have a job to do at the end of the day. And there's a level of service that is expected of us. I cannot force anybody to train the way that I like to train or, or feel fired up the way that I feel fired up. I just, I just can't. The only thing that I can do is bear down and say, Hey man, I've, I've got to stay consistent. I've got, this is what I believe in. This is who I am. And, and this is what I'm fighting for. I have to stay consistent. If you allow yourself in that situation to get beat up, you're just going to wind up developing that attitude of, I don't care. And once that happens, it, just like that, you've, you've checked out. And now everything that you thought you were fighting for, you, you become part of that problem because you just give up, you know, cause it's easier. Just don't understand that people rather fight for their own limitations and realize there are none, right? There, there really isn't any, we can go as high or as low as we want as an organization, right? It, it's really up to that one person to stand up and say, this is not acceptable. I'm not doing this anymore. Is it going to take time? Yeah, it's going to take time. It's not going to be overnight. Think about anything in your life that you have that's worth having. None of that was instant success. It's a grind, right? Uh, you know, it's just, that's what I would tell everybody. In order to stay motivated, you have to stay disciplined. You know, we, we have this thing called, uh, <laughs> Pablo and I talk about it all the time, like motivation will fail you, right? And, and that's the reason why we say that is like, look, look at what's going to happen come January 1, right? Everybody's going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going on a diet. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm, I'm, I'm going to exercise more. Whatever it is that uh, they've been thinking about, that's their time. And they might do it for two, three, four months. And then they slowly fall off that wagon because why? They don't have any discipline. They don't have that discipline to say, hey, man, get your shit together. You know, like, come on, we've made it this far. Keep going. You know, it's, it's about what's at the end of this road, not, not what the roadblock is in front of us. And um, that would be my biggest thing, too, is you got to have discipline, you know, because there are a lot of things that are going to happen throughout your career. Lots of highs, lots of lows, lots of things. You'll find yourself highly motivated and then you'll be like, ah, I'm just not feeling this. And you've got to get yourself out of that rut, man. You know, and ebbs, ebbs and flows are, are good like that, you know, and the reason why I say that is it gives you time to reflect on what has worked and what hasn't worked. Right. You could say, all right, I was here. Now I'm here. I'm kind of in this, uh, this rut. What, what through that process worked really well and what didn't now you can regather your thoughts, refocus, and then formulate a plan and move further. And now that's where that escalation comes in. Um, so yeah, that's just, that, that would be my advice. I don't know if it's going to help anybody, but it certainly has proven true to me because man, <laughs> totally transparent. I used to be that guy that says, man, you know, like F this I'm done. Like if nobody cares, I don't care. And that's just such a toxic mindset to adapt, right? Um, and it's hard to get out of. Once you put yourself into that position, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work on yourself to like dig deep and be like, whoa, 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 who am I? How did I get here? And, and how do I fix this? And, you know, make no mistake about it. Like 
once you start on that decline and, and you, your motivation's lost and you don't have that discipline to, to get yourself up, it affects your performance. It doesn't just affect your mental thought process. It affects your physical performance. It, it affects everything, you know? And again, being honest, I was in a bad spot when I let that stuff get to me. I, <laughs> I was like, not a really nice person. And, and it took my own wife to be like, Hey, what is wrong with you? And, and to like that slap in the face, to be like, Oh man, because I was in that situation where I'm like, you know, mentally it wasn't strong enough to, to just keep going it at the end of it. Right. At the end of it, I promise you, you'll look back, you'll say it's worth it. And all those people that, that are giving you crap for what you do or, or are part of the problem trying to drag you down, they're going to stop even bothering with you because they, they're going to have two choices. They're going to either follow your lead, right? Or they're going to say, hey, man, that, just let that guy do his thing, you know? And, and that's what I found. And I have no, I, I don't mind being that guy, you know, with that everyone looks at and be like, man, slow down, relax. Like you're making us all look bad or whatever cool, good. I, I don't care. Cause this is me. Right. And, and I'm not going to ever apologize for what I do or how I feel. And, uh, you know, if, if, as long as you're not aggressive in your approach and you're not beating them down and getting in their face and engaging in those arguments over time, they're, they're going to respect who you are and they're going to respect your work ethic and, and everything will become a little bit easier for you. That was very well said. I I noticed too, uh, it affects your your family life too, your your change and ebb and flow with with you know your passion and such. Like my just like your wife, uh, my wife noticed mine as well, you know, and she also said that I wasn't the same person, you know, depending on where I was and and all that with with my passion and, and love for the job. Oh yeah. Um, all right. So without giving us uh, every detail, so that way you can still do the class. Uh, can you kind of talk to us about your uh, survivability versus searchability class? Yeah. Um, first, the name. I, I chose that name on purpose. All right. Um, I, I, like much of, of many people, probably were indoctrinated with that whole survivability profiling thing. Um, I hate that. I can't stand it. I, I don't. I don't judge people who still choose to use it. I just ask them to, to, to kind of think, what does that mean to them? And does it mean the same thing to everybody? Because it probably doesn't. So with that, the reason why I chose that name is we really have a few options on the fire sir, or on the fire ground. We, our, our objectives are like to create and, and, and maintain like searchable space or keep from losing the ones we already have, right? Uh, it's really that simple. When you come in and you say survivability profiling, or there's nobody, there's no way somebody can survive in that environment. And you start seeing like videos where on the outside, um, it just looked really, really bad, but there's somebody was alive in there. And, you know, and we we're so willing immediately to write that off. I, I have a huge issue with that because that's not what we're there to do, right? We're there to do everything we can to make the situation better. And we're there to do everything we can to save a life. So for me, it really boils down to one thing. Like we're not there to guess odds. We're there to give odds, period. And um, when we're sitting there in the front yard and we have that comfortability about us that we can 
100% say uh, there's nobody alive in that space, then why the hell are we telling them to close their door? Right? Why are we telling them to do all these things that, that could save your life? And then we're not willing to go in and search those spaces um, where they're most likely to be. Uh, so instead of saying survivability, I, I think it's better to say searchability because really like we don't get to determine survivability. That, that's not us. That's, that's to the man upstairs or whatever higher being you believe in. Um, our job is to find and remove them, right? And, and the first step in that removal process is to actually locate that individual. So if we're not occupying spaces that we can get in with our bunker gear, right? Then what are we doing? And, and I think it's, a lot of uh, misinformation or what we like to do in the fire service is we like to throw our opinions out there a lot, really have no facts behind it. And then maybe like a newer firefighter will come in and latch onto that. And that's what he chooses to like pass on. And when you, when you step up and you say, why, why is it like this? What you find is most people don't have a, a legitimate answer. You start showing them the data the UL studies, you know, the, the rescue survey data, like all of these things, <laughs> they just get mad because they had, they, they find out that like whatever bias they had is just, it's just not valid anymore. You know, the fire, the fire service has changed and we're still trying to do things the same way we did 30 years ago. And it just doesn't work. We don't have time. So the, the whole premise of it was get on scene, do your size up, not just for the fire, because our eyes, human nature for our eyes to track to, to movement and light um, is to look at the, the broad picture here and say, okay, I can get into that space. And if you're able to get in that space and you're able to occupy that space, we need to be doing so as quickly as possible. You know, that's um, just my, my opinion on it. And then you look at what else goes into it, right? Search effort for a long time, at least for me and, and how I was brought up in the fire service was kicking the door and just go hook a left or hook a right hand on the wall and just, and just go. And there wasn't really much thought put into it. Now there's a lot, you know, you have, you have a small amount of time on the outside before you actually occupy the interior that you have to gather a lot of information. And some of that is like, what is my smoke telling me? Where's my fire at? You know, how much time do I have? You know, um, one of the things we use is, is bagging the fire. You know, uh, it's just like, where's the fire been? Where's it at? And where's it going to go? Um, and, and we need to be able to know that for our search effort, right? We need to be able to know how to control spaces, um, closing, closing spaces as we go or, or opening windows to ventilate to support that search. There's just, there's a lot to the search. And, um, you know, we cover so much in that class uh, that our intent is that when you leave the class, you have a better understanding of, of what it entails and you have more confidence to do what's asked of you. But ultimately, you know, I was in a time too where it's like you didn't do shit unless your company officer told you to do something. And not that that's bad. I, I don't want to paint the wrong picture, but the problem with what that is, is we also have to, in that same process, create forward thinking firefighters and it just wasn't happening. So the question is, well, why didn't you do this? I, I wasn't told to. Okay. Well, you weren't told to. So you kind of like 
at that point disconnect from what's happening on the fire scene and it's just a snowball effect right so you know smoke reading removal process um you know just all of the things that would encompass search because there there's something that i feel really strongly about too is i can give you all of the tools to perform the search and you can be awesome but if you're not capable of removing that victim we have failed right you cannot only be good at one part of that equation and expect to, to save a life. It's not going to happen. So understanding your own personal limitations, right? Whether it be mentally or physically and overcoming those so that you can do what's asked of you. Because the bottom line is like when we, when we go to a fire, the victims don't, do not get to choose their rescuers. And we as rescuers don't get to choose our victims. So the analogy of, oh, they're too heavy, or I just couldn't move them or, or whatever. Like, that's just an excuse, right? Don't, don't let that stop you. The whole point in this removal process is cool. We did our job. We found them. Now we're going to get them out. How are we going? Are we going back the way we came? Or are we going to this room behind us? How are we removing them? Is this a dirty drag? Is this webbing? Or what? It, do we know how to do any of that stuff? Um, so we hit a lot on that too, is like, know your own limitations, know how much you can move alone, because you may very well have to do that until you can get some help. And the option of just sitting there and waiting is, is not a good option that that's, that's not helping. So um, those are kind of the cliff notes of, of some of the most passionate parts for me of that class. Um, but oh, overall, the intent, like I said, have that comfortability when you leave, but also understand what you're looking at when you arrive and, and how does that like correlate to the decisions that you're about to make. That was a great rendition of that. And I appreciate you giving me myself and, and the listeners that. Um, all right. So it, it might seem like five letters, but changing one's mindset. Uh, to look for searchable space as opposed to survivable space uh, can have some pretty significant downstream changes. Can you speak to why this change in mindset is important to you and what changes you have seen in others uh, when they make this mindset change? Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of touched on it a little bit there, but um, the, the change in mindset of, can I get in there, right? What is, what is my flow path? Tell me, what is my smoke? Tell me like all of those things versus nobody can survive, that definitely has to change. Um, moral of the story is survivability of occupants behind closed doors is extremely high, right? So when we go to a fire, you, we have to understand that we have observable conditions from the exterior, but we don't truly know what it looks like on the interior until we can get in there, right? Um, so once you enter into a building, you know, it kind of becomes from like a one-dimensional view on the outside to a, what I call a three-dimensional view on the inside. Now you have walls and, and furniture and stuff that start to divide up the building. Um, knowing where and how to occupy those spaces is, is essential. And when we in our class say, what is tenable space? Um, or what is uh searchable space or what is survivability profiling what we found is a lot of times like you give three very distinct different terms but overall the students roughly say the same thing right so 
it, it all comes down to like sizing up that search effort, right? And that's what I think that we need to do is keep it simple. Hey, sizing it up. And if I'm looking at this space and I'm looking at everything else and I know how much time I have or roughly how much time I have, uh, what the conditions are telling me and can I make this happen, then yes, go make it happen. End of discussion. Where we find the survivability falling in, um, at least in, in my experiences, is you have a lot of people that make decisions because they just truly don't know. You know, whether it's lack of training or they're, they're afraid or, or whatever it is, they like to fall back on that survivability profile as a reason they didn't dedicate crews to an interior search. Um, and and <laughs> I have a problem with that because people are dying, right? People are dying. And one of the things that we like to always go back to is, uh, you know, back when they had the top finder stickers and all that on the windows, that was like your universal, like, please come in here, right? Prioritize this room for me. And then those things went away and firefighters stopped prioritizing search at all, right? Until it was safer for them, you know? And, and I'm not saying be, be a cowboy and, and, you know, do reckless stuff. But what I'm saying is what is safe, right? Like what, what do you deem as safe? It, if everybody's understanding of what safe enough is, is different or risk is different or whatever, everybody's making different decisions and that could be negative or positive. So we really need to come and bring this in and stop making policies based off of things that really have no definite definition and say, Hey, listen, it's real simple. That is a space that we can get into right now. And if I don't, then we're going to lose it. And if we lose it, everybody in there is gone too. So we have to put our efforts into doing this now, you know, and, and everything on a fire is searchable at some point, right? We'll get to it once the fire gets under control or later in the, th uh, in the, in the uh, process, we have to focus on our efforts of where we can do the greatest good. Like, where is it right now, now that I have to do my first things to have the highest probability of saving a life? And that's where you go. So, uh, yeah, I, I think once we started teaching that stuff and, and bringing people aware of, of how terminology or our basic understanding of what words mean um, can really affect our fire ground, you start seeing things change. Uh, you know, the word aggressive is not a bad word. Just, it just gets a lot of negative annotations put to it. But the thing is, you'll see uh, our students start doing things that they weren't comfortable with before. You know, when we do a two-day or a three-day class and we give them all the information, we run them through the drills and stuff like that, show of hands, who, who's done this or who's comfortable doing it? A lot of people raise their hands and say no. End of the day or end of the class, everyone's doing it and they're fine with it, right? Because they've realized the, the choices they needed to make to be comfortable and understand what it's, it's actually expected of them. And uh, we get some, some emails and uh, text messages from people who have taken our classes who say, hey, thank you because of what you taught us. We had a successful rescue in fires that we probably would have just called, you know, everybody gone on arrival. So when you get those things, it, it's really nice. Not, not for us to be like tooting our own horns, but it's really nice to see that changes are being made and, and it has a positive outcome. Nobody got hurt. 
but a civilian life got removed from the structure, which is our primary reason why we're there. So kudos to those guys, you know? Yeah, that was great. So for, for those listening, uh, whose departments have less than ideal, ideal search culture, uh, what would be some ways uh, for them to do some uh, positive change in their culture and climate within their departments? Well, anytime you, you talk about change, I always try and tell people, keep the word change out of it, right? Because that's, that's alarming to some people. When you hear change, you're like, whoa, 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 what's wrong with what we're doing? And, and now they're automatically on the defense. So what I would say is when you approach it, make sure you have the data, all of it, not some of it, you know, and welcome questions and use the word enhance. Like, for example, hey, Cap, you know, um, I'd like to do some search training or whatever. I haven't done it in a while. I found some things out here. Here's some data and things, uh, you know, whether it be on uh, search technique or, or where we're finding victims. I like to give it a try so we can enhance what we're already doing. That's more of um, capturing to that person rather than putting them on the defense immediately of saying, we're going to change it, right? So information is critical. You have to have it. I can come to any one of you guys on my crew and say, hey, we need to do this. And you're going to say, why? If I don't have that information, then it's just opinion. And the fire service doesn't operate that way, right? We, we operate on facts, what we know and, and that's what we're after, right? I don't care about anyone's opinion, nor should we, right? Opinions are good during training when we're trying to figure out how to improve. Opinions are not good on the fire ground when people are bickering about tactical decisions that need to be made, right? So the thing that I would say um, for anybody is if you don't have that good culture, I've been there and, and it sucks. It really does because you're wanting to just go like, you know, you're like a pit bull on a leash, you know, go, go, go. You got to have to slow it down a little bit. Like, you know what you know, and that's great. Eat small bites, right? This is another process. Um, you can't go in and expect to change the culture of anything overnight. Certainly a search culture. Understand that when it comes to search, we have a lot of negative things that are being taught right in the academy. And that's where a lot of people choose to stop their uh, learning process in that realm, right? So when you come at them, they don't, they probably don't understand, right? Because all they've ever known for their career is, is what they were shown or what they were taught in the academy. And that's, that's been good enough. So you're going to have to do a lot of creative work, a lot of, a lot of ways to bring that in and say, Hey, I read this thing. Uh, did you know that, you know, X amount of people are found in the hallway during a search or, or uh, the bedroom? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, what do you think that means? Like, how does it, what does that mean? Because traditionally here for us, we go in and we do like a left-hand search and we stay on the wall. Like, do you think that having this information and knowing that if we would just not do that and go straight to like a window for like a VES where we know bedrooms are and the, the victims are in the hallway and the bedroom are, are high probabilities. Like, should we occupy that space first and then move back? Create that conversation back and forth, but don't allow yourself to get angry because I'm telling you, you're going to find out some people just they're set in their ways and they don't want to hear it. And, and you're just going to say, okay, 
and focus your efforts on the people that that actually engage in that conversation and want to hear it and start chipping away at that block because that that's the only way that you're going to make forward progress without making yourself look like an arrogant asshole. Yeah, that was a lot of good advice, man. Uh, thank you. Um, all right. When, when we look at hot classes from a philosophical and pragmatic perspective, there seems to be two basic camps that instructors fall into. You have uh, focusing on the basics or uh, more advanced skills. Uh, both these are beneficial. Where do you focus your time and attention to when you teach search? Uh, well, I mean, my, my view on it is, you know, you, you have to be brilliant in the basics. You have to. I mean, that is the foundation of everything we do. You can't ev advance past that if you don't understand it. So one of the things that uh, I like to do, every class is different, right? At all the students, um, they have different uh, experience levels and, and things like that. So before we even start, I say, who's been in a fire before? Show of hands. Okay, cool. Who's been in the fire service for like one to five years? All right, cool. You guys go over here. And, and I split them up so I can kind of look at them more, right? Instead of just mixed into the group. And the next question that follows after they're all split up is who has put their hands on a victim before? Maybe one or two hands come up. Okay, great. Was it easy? Was it hard? Tell us about it. I'll let them share their experience for a minute, you know, just kind of get some engagement. And then I say, all right, so here's what we're going to do. Because most of our class is, you know, within that one to five year range, who has taken a decent amount of search training or who, who you know, has, has had an opportunity to do this quite a bit on the fire ground? Again, what you find is generally not most. So depending on those answers and the groups that we have will depend on how um, basic or advanced that we're going to get. We always start with some fundamental basic skills. Like one of the things I love to do is, all right, I pair them up. I said, we're just going to go through. You won't hear anything from me. I'm just evaluating you guys, okay? I don't let people who normally work together work together the first time because I, I want to get them outside of their comfort zone, right? And see who's taking charge because there's the thing where somebody needs to be leading that search effort, right? So I'm actually looking for leaders in that aspect too. Once we let them all go through like once um, on their own, they'll say, okay, listen, this is what we saw. So let's work on this before we do anything else. Let's get the technique down. Let's get the communication down. When we do that, then we can move on. And uh, we just blend it, really. We blend it with uh, a good mix of basic skills. One, for refreshment. Two, for people who don't really have a chance to, to do that all that often. And then it's building blocks from there for everybody. So at the end, we do a full-scale scenario. And I tell them, hey, listen, based off of what we taught you so far, you will not hear anything from me unless I need to correct something. I want you guys to make all the decisions as a crew because that's what you're going to do. And I will not be there on that fire with you. So do this like you normally would. And then you do it and then we critique it. And then we just do more sets and reps. Um, so we try and tailor it to what we feel the or the students need. But again, too, like when we're going into some place, maybe it's a, a fire department somewhere. That's one of the very first questions I ask. What do you guys need to work on? What, what do you feel you need to, to, to get down the best 
to improve your efficiency. And whatever they say, that's what we primarily work on. And then we'll throw some other like more advanced things in there just to give them a little, little nuggets here and there. And then we work on, you know, so I wouldn't say we do more of one than the other. We just kind of, it's situational dependent for us. I, I think that's, that's been proven for us anyway, to work the best rather than have a, a plan every single time. Um, and, you know, we've had guys that are chief officers be like, man, no one's ever shown me that I'm going to teach this in my department. Thank you. And, and I'd rather that take place than, Hey, I've already laid this out for you, what I feel you need to learn. So this is what we're going to do because I've watched it. We, <laughs> we were in training not too long ago. I think we were in Ohio and, um, my buddy, Justin phrase says, Hey, just give me a basic search technique. That's all I need. And the kid literally stops on me. He goes, I don't know what the hell that means. Great. So he doesn't know what it means. So anything that we were to, to automatically assume that he, he knew would have been out the window at that point. So what did he have to do? He had this come back and say, okay, come with me. I'm going to work with you privately. We're going to get you caught up to what everybody else knows. I'd rather just get that out of the way right from the beginning and then build from there. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I, I, I also think that uh, basics should be at the forefront, you know, uh, basics beat fires in my opinion. So that, that's all you need. <clears throat> um, all right, next thing, uh, you also have some uh, well-formed opinions on two in, two out. Uh, can you tell us where you land on this and why? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I can. <laughs> where, where I land on this, um, I, I don't want to say that it's a bad thing. All right. Um, I think it's intentions were good. I think much like a lot of other things in the fire service, it becomes bastardized, right? Um, because people tend to just make it what it means for them. One thing about me is I will always ask why, and I will find out I will do the research and I'll be like, is this really best practice? Like, why are we really doing this? Do we still need to be doing this? Like all of those things are, are important to me. So what I found is just a lot of contradiction in the two out, two and two out. Um, you know, you can go on OSHA's website and, and read like their letters, right? That people, people write to them, ask them questions uh, and, they, and they give them a response. And some of the stuff that you find in there is, is pretty alarming because you're, you're telling me that the whole, the whole purpose of this two in, two out, of why I can't go in a building until I have two people outside is for a writ team in case something goes bad for me. But you're also telling me in that same directive, one, that it, it is your own interpretation, but two, that one of those people can be pumping my fire engine and the other person can be in charge of the scene. Neither one of them are in the proper position for a writ if I need their help. So to me, that's null and void. Right. And we have line of duty deaths that have happened because of that. Right. Because the one person was on the pump panel pumping the fire engine. Right. So I like to just break it down and say, hey, listen, if you read all of these things, it says that we have the right to interpret the fire ground. Right. How we see fit and make decisions. It also says that we have the right to be wrong in those assumptions. So when you look at that, you now have, you now have budding of heads going on. Like 
I could read this and, and it's, it says, this is OSHA's interpretation, but they also say I have the right to be wrong. So I'm making these decisions based off of what I know. You're going to read this and you're going to say, no, it says that we can't go in there unless we have one person operate the pump. However, the strongest thing that it says in that entire directive is that if you feel that there is a life that needs to be saved, one person can search and one person can perform fire attack. Well, here it is. In the situations that most of us are in now, we have what? Two-man fire companies. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's reality for a lot of people. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, again, we're not going to do like some crazy cowboy stuff here, but based on what we know, because we're smart, forward-thinking firemen, and we take all of our data and we've analyzed this situation and, and we trained and we've done all of these things, why can we not put a handline in operation to suppress the fire while the person searches behind that handline all that searchable space for victims that'll be in there? What danger are they in at this point, right? Again, depending on who you ask, you might get a different answer. One of the biggest things that debunks this whole thing is read the Project Mayday study. Okay, Project Mayday went over like over 6,000 Maydays. And what they found is that interior crew or self-rescue or member of your own crew are most likely to get you out of that situation. And 6% of the time was an actual activation where the RIT team legitimately needed to come in and get that person. Not saying that, that we shouldn't have RIT teams and that their service is not needed because I 100% value, respect, and think that RIT teams are needed. But Project Mayday found that we're not doing it right. So because we're not doing it right, the two in two out rule is pretty much null and void, right? Because people are not properly dressed. They don't really know their assignment. So they're not properly trained. They're not coming to the scene with the proper tools, right? All of these things. We don't have proper personnel because let's face it, you start breaking it down. It's going to take when a RIT team gets activated on average, it takes more than those two people. So all of these things play. So it's like that safety factor that we threw on there. Like, hey, you're safe as long as two people are out. Go get it. And that's really not true because let's look at what's happening on the other side. The longer we wait to go inside, the longer conditions are changing. I don't know about anybody else. I don't want to be in a burning building longer than I have to be. I want to get my assignment, go do it, and get the hell out. Okay? I'm not looking to camp out in there. right? I don't care about my helmet looking all cool and stuff. Like That's not what I'm there for. So when you start dissecting all of those things, two in, two out, it's hurting us and it's hurting our search culture, right? I mean, people literally write policies on this and then they have departments that have two-man engines and the response times are 10 minutes from each other. Like, what are we doing? How is that benefiting anyone, right? So I, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's become a good thing. I think it's great to have people on the outside, you know, softening the building and doing all those things that we need in case we need to get a victim out or a firefighter out. But realistically, uh, end of discussion for me is that the safest place to be in that building or is in that building with another crew because they're most likely going to be able to come get you. And if we're practicing self-rescue techniques and all these other things, then, hey, statistically, we should be able to rescue ourselves. And if we can't, and what better person than somebody who's already inside the building with us to come straight to us to help out?
Um, just my two cents on it. Yeah, thank you for, for breaking that down and giving us your thoughts on that and to the listeners. Um, so what do you think that we as the American Fire Service are doing right? And what do you think we're doing wrong? I think so. <laughs> I think we're, we're doing right with like wanting what's best safety wise for our firefighters. I think we're doing it wrong by focusing on the wrong things, right? So for instance, we're so, we were so focused. Maybe we still are. Um, I kind of tuned out of the whole conversation because I, I thought it was, you know, hilarious. Um, the clean cab concept, right? Clean cab, clean cab, or all these clean cab concepts. Awesome. So we've just increased time to get ready, right? So gosh, who knows? Maybe the driver had to pee before we got out of the station. So he went and peed. So we've lost time there and I'm not allowed to bunk out in quarters. So I've got to wait. Now we get, so we're already behind, right? So I get there. Now I got to pull this stuff out and bunk out right now. So I've wasted time again. And I've got to stretch line, throw ladders, do whatever. It's just time wasted in my opinion. And I'm not saying cancer isn't a big deal because it is, but you know what? <laughs> we need to be concerned with what's on our firehouse kitchen tables. We need to be concerned with like the mental health of our firefighters, the physical health of our firefighters and, and all of those things. And when we start pushing agendas very heavily in one direction and totally discount the fact that like, a lot of firefighters are dying from suicide or, you know, a lot of firefighters are obese. And one of our biggest killers of firefighters to date is cardiovascular issues. And we're missing the mark, right? I, my gear is the last of my concern at this point. You know, if we gross decon on scene and we do all these things and we take the proper precautions, you want a clean cab, then clean the damn cab. When you get back from the fire, scrub everything down, hose it off, do all that stuff. Can focus your efforts on the firefighter that can't do his job because he can barely breathe because he's 200 pounds overweight or the guy who's just not acting right because his, his mental health is going down the shitter and nobody cares. Like nobody's checking on him, Nobody's seeing what he needs or trying to find him help. Like those are the things that I feel personally we need to focus on. Um, it's no secret, you know, again, like not that cancer is a, is, is not a big issue because it is, but we, we know what we, what we're getting into when we, when we sign up for this job, we know that cancer is a possibility and we, there's certain prevention measures that we can take. We just choose not to, right. Cause let's, let's, <laughs> let's be honest. Everybody wants to look cool, right? Everybody wants that burnt up lid. Everybody wants that, that tattered up gear to, to make them look like they've done some shit. And, and that's the culture aspect of things that needs to change. But what needs to change inside the firehouse and as a fire services whole is annual physicals, right? Mental and physical. And, and, you know, we spend stupid money on stuff. Hey, how about getting with a nutritionist and making sure that firefighters eating right and doing all these things that they're supposed to do? Because, you know, I find it troublesome that a lot of departments, not all of them, but a lot of them, you're, you're a number. Okay. And we're all temporary employees. We're going to retire at some point when I retire or, or I quit or, or maybe I get fired, whatever the situation is like, I no longer work there and, and they move on. And, and my life is my life. So getting better at taking care of our firefighters while we have them in all aspects, I think is where the focus needs to be and stop making our job 
sound less dangerous than it is. So where people are scared to do what they signed up to do and then making that okay too. Like it's twofold, right? Yes, this job's dangerous. Yes, you can get cancer. Yes, we need to be mentally, physically fit. Yes, we need to do this. Also, (laughs) you need to be a good fireman. You need to understand what your job is. You need to do all these other things and stop being mediocre because at that point, you're also a detriment to people. You're detriment to your citizens, you're detriment to your crew, and you're detriment to yourself, right? So I think like we get these ideas in the fire service that are good, right? Like, like I said, that whole cancer initiative, great. I'm on board with it. But where we choose to put our focus in that effort is kind of off balance. And we need to kind of regroup that and, and make sure. Now, I say all that to say that, uh, you know, one of the things that with the mental health, I know there's a lot of people working on it, but Blake Stinnett from Next Run, man, love that guy. He's doing amazing work. And that is a prime example of what is going right in the fire service. You know, um, we can all teach these classes and try and better the fire service tactic wise, but that man is single handedly like in his organization that he, he operates changing the fire service for the better, preventing suicides, getting people to help. Right. Ask me how I know, cause I've, I've used it. Right. And I'm not afraid to say that it is what it is. Um, he is what he says he is. And, and if you need something, that man will be right there and he'll hook you up. So yeah, that is prime example of, of some things that we have going right in our fire service. And I'd like to see more of that continue, um, throughout the years because our job's hard. I don't care what anyone says. We have a difficult job to do. Uh, we deal with difficult people. We make difficult decisions. Like it's okay to, to, Tell the guys you work with, hey, love you, man. It's okay to care about those guys. It's okay, you know, to say, hey, let's go to the gym and 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 you know, get on this. Like, let's just be people. It's okay to like um be personable. Hey man, how's your family? Are they doing okay? Do you guys need anything? All of these things are perfectly acceptable. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. Excellent. Um if you could see into the future, what would uh, fire service training look like in 10 to 20 years? Oh, man, hopefully not target solutions and fire rescue one and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I hope not. Um, again, not, not that there's anything wrong with those. There's, there's a place for everything. Um, but when that becomes your primary way of doing things, I think that's where we run into some problems. Um, fire service training for me. Man, I, if I had my way, every fire department would have a training coordinator and a training cadre um, and a schedule of what you're going to do. Uh, every fire department would have a force entry door or some sort of, you know, um, hose bed deployment, you know, um, prop and, and, and all these things. Because let's be honest, you know, I get it. Some of the training that, that we want to do is, is very time consuming and can't justify like taking loads off, you know, hose loads off the engine and and all that. And what, whatever they, they want to put in the way of trying to get that done. But if you have somebody in your organization that can organize this, then you're getting training in your organization pretty consistently. Right. So then when you go to these fire conferences and everything else, you're not like sitting there and be like, why is the first time that I've heard of this? This is crazy just looking at what, what I look at, I see a lot of fire departments 
hire people on, right? And whatever training they get throughout the year is what they get. And most people are content with that. Hell, some people don't even know about fire conferences. Some people don't know about things like what we're doing now. You know, so the, the training in the fire service for me would be putting the more, more people in charge who, who do have access to this information, who believe this and, and truly understand that like large portion of our success is training and getting this right in training, right? I would like to see that. I would like to see more realistic fire training, you know, like, hey, I can't, I can't give you a real fire like, like you're going to see in the house. I, I mean, I can make it pretty damn close, but we're so scared to do that. Like when you go burn in buildings, you're like, oh, don't burn too hot or don't do this. Or you can only put three pallets on and we shortchange our firefighters. Like, hey, bring back acquired structures, man. And if you're not going to bring back acquired structures, take your little Connex box building, frame it out, hang some drywall and let that thing rip. Like let these guys and, and girls see what fire looks like, how it behaves. Let them look, let them see like what happens when you put the, the nozzle, um, when you get the nozzle in and you flow and move, or you put that stream right in the right spot. Like all these visual things that we're able to provide in training need to be happening more. And, and I see it like we go up to these places and we want to do it. And they're like, no, 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 <laughs> you can't do that. You're crazy. 1403, 1403. It's like, stop, stop with that. Okay. Like I understand what you're saying. We're not doing anything unsafe here. We're just, we're just creating a very realistic fire. What is unsafe is creating situations that do not exist and, and tricking firefighters to thinking that that's what they're going to see. Right. So when they get to the real thing, they're confused. They're, they're scared. They, they're like, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. My adrenaline's so high. I'm like all over the place. No set them up for success by exposing them to this. So that's a twofold thing for me is, you know, training um, within your organization, having people truly in charge of that, who actually know what needs to be done and creating realistic fire training. Um, those two things coupled together, man, if we can get that, our fire service would be amazing in the next 50 years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, diving into the last little bit, a little rapid fire for you. Best class you've ever been to? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, best class that I've ever taken personally is um, Tim Kletz hoarding fire. Live fire training class in Orlando. <laughs> that guy is, is awesome. He will literally... So he, it's a live fire class. So they got live fire going in the back and um, they just like wire tie, like all these bicycles and lawn furniture and stuff all together and, and shove it in there. And you go in with teams of three and uh, man, if you don't carry anything in your gear, you're screwed. <laughs> you're not, you're not getting through that. Um, if you don't understand like water application, you know, and, and where it needs to go and, and who in that line of people in that building should really have the nozzle. It's going to be challenging for you. It's a total ass kicker of a class, but man, I would take it every year if I could, cause I just learned so much. Um, so we're so accustomed to what nozzle man going in first, right? Hey, boom, we need to go there. But realistically in this situation, the nozzle man should be like towards the back. Because 
he's going to be putting out fire while creating not only suppressing the fire, but creating space for the two firefighters in front that are cutting and, and, and passing back stuff so you can continue through. I learned that lesson the hard way, you know, trying to sit there and guys come and bask me and I, I'm over here and he's cutting stuff and I'm moving. And it's just, now you're crammed. You can't get things through. And, and Tim was like, Hey man, you guys need to change up your positioning. And once he showed me that, man, that was like a total game changer for me in all fires of, Hey, the, the position of the nozzle is going to dictate your success. That was what I got out of that. And that was like a huge, huge nugget. So that's by far one of my favorite classes. Yeah, Lieutenant Clint is uh, he's a good man. He's a good man. All right. Uh, what's the best conference you've been to? Oh, best conference that I've been to uh, as an instructor or as a student? Because those are two different. <laughs> Both. Uh, so as an instructor, I, I think one of the best conferences that, that I, I enjoy uh, personally was Firehouse Expo. Um, I wasn't doing any hot classes there, but, uh, you know, just, just being able to be in that lobby every night with all, all the instructors, um, have meals and just like, you know, go out to the showroom floor and, and be able to like talk and, and like test different things out. And, you know, just that, that was, that was awesome for me because, you know, it's nice to be able to, to have time to sit in classes, you know, and what I've, what I've witnessed or, and been a part of is a lot of times when I go out as an instructor to other conferences, my schedule's full, like, Hey, I need you to do this, do that, do this. And while that's great and I don't mind doing it, it's nice to be able to step back and actually sit in classes, support your friends, you know, who are teaching there too, sit in their classes and then just pick all these people's brains right there on the showroom floor. They'll show you demos. They don't care. You know, it's, it's, it was really, really good experience. Very uh, instructor focused, you know, which, which I liked. Um, so that, that was a good one for me. Uh, I had a lot of fun there as a student. I, you know, maybe I'm a little biased, but uh, man, <laughs> Fort Lauderdale fire expo, hands down. Uh, you want live fire training? Gosh, you will get enough. You will get more than enough there and uh it's it's legit i mean you're gonna get some real fire behavior and you're gonna work with some guys that that know their shit and they're gonna put you through the paces and you know i look forward to that one every year um it's it's a really really fun time and i've never walked away from there as a student being like oh man it was better last year like it just seems like every year is just amplified you know, and uh, I don't know how they do it, but man, they do an incredible job. And I would recommend to anybody to definitely put that high on your list of conferences to attend. If you're looking to get some sets and reps in like realistic fire conditions. Nice. Uh, best book you've read? Uh, actually, <laughs> I'm reading it right now. It's a uh, how more on leadership. So that's, that's got a lot of lessons in it, you know, leadership, not, not just for people who might be in officers positions, but just in general for life. Um, you know, people tend to think of leadership as like, you have to have rank and that's just not true. Um, you know, anybody who's married, guess who, guess what your husband, right? You're, you're a leader in that household or, or your wife can, 
you know, she can be a leader in that household as well. Or, you know, just in the workplace, maybe you're not a firefighter and, and you just, you know, you work a desk job or something, you can still be a leader in the workforce. And he's got so much stuff in there that when you hear him like talk and you relate it to your own personal experiences of how maybe you thought you would have handled that situation, that light bulb comes on. You're like, man, that's, that seems like a way better solution that that's going to have a better outcome. And, um, you're one of the things that, that struck me pretty good in that is that, uh, you chastise in private and you praise in public, right? So he never, he always defended his men, right? He would deal with what needed to be deal with in private, but in public, you don't mess with my guys, you know? And I like to see a lot more of that because I feel like sometimes, uh, maybe it's just me, but I feel like sometimes like our leadership is very two-faced. Um, and it, like they'll say one thing to you, like, Hey man, I got your back. You're like, if you need anything, let me know. But then they'll leave you out to dry. You know, when, when shit gets real, like they'll just kind of step back and, and you're looking for, you know, the support of your leader. And they're just like, sorry, bud, this is, this is all on you. And you're like, Hey, what the hell, man? Like, <laughs> you know, we could talk about this later, but you're supposed to have my back right now. And I'm not saying like cover up, you know, and, and, and lie for people and all that. But what I'm saying is like, I've seen a lot of times where um, officers will yell and scream or even senior firemen will yell and scream at other people in front of other people, you know, and it's very awkward because you see everybody just kind of scatters like a bunch of ants, like, oh shit, <laughs> we got to get out of here. I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Like, you know, it's, it's almost like, like my brother, if my brother and I don't see it eye to eye, that's fine. But you're, you're not going to mess with my brother, right? Like that's my brother and uh, I can mess with them, but you can't. And, and that's kind of the whole analogy that, that I got from that book. It is, it's an incredible book. Excellent. I'll have to check it out. Um, and then lastly, what podcast do we need to be listening to? Oh, Gosh, there's so many, like, it seems like almost everybody has a podcast these days, right? Like, so there's a lot out there, but, um, this one, obviously, and I'm not saying that just cause I'm, I'm on here. Uh, I've listened to it for a while. You guys do awesome stuff. Um, I, I always recommend this one. I recommend, uh, Corley Moore and his, uh, weekly scrap. That's a, that's a great one. Uh, he really gets down into some rabbit holes there. Um, fire engineering podcasts. You know, the, the Mikey D and Mikey D show or Mikey D and Mikey G show is, is pretty good. Uh, Mike Dugan and Mike Galliano, they have a good podcast there. Um, Todd Edwards and Anthony Rowett, they do the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> engine podcast there. So that's, uh, you know, that's th th those are some of my favorite. Um, if you're looking for culture stuff, man, I, I'll tell you, like, uh, Jeremy Sanders with crew first culture. He's, he's got some good stuff, man. He's, he's one of my favorite people. He, he keeps it real down to earth. Like that, that's a good one, uh, for sure. So, I mean, the list can go on. It really just depends on what you're looking for, but you know, if, if you're looking for, like I said, Anthony and, and Todd, they do the generation engine. If you're looking for engine company stuff or, you know, and things like that, great podcast. Um, you know, there's a little something for everybody out there. 
uh, you know, shameless plug for the make do <laughs> that's, that's, I enjoy it. Like I, I talked about beginning and, and I don't say that just because uh, I'm co-host on there. Um, there's a lot of good conversation on there with a lot of good people, uh, covering a lot of good, uh, topics. So, you know, don't mind me and Nick talking, <laughs> just listen to what the guests have to say. Cause those, they, they throw down some, some pretty good, uh, information for people. So those are all my favorites, honestly. Um, the, the other ones, man, they're hit or miss. Like they they come and go, you know, they're not so consistent. So I, I won't name them just, just because I don't want to, but, um, there's, there's so many out there, man. Like really, like you can look at it, but if I had to put, pick a, a, a select few, I, those would be the ones I would go to for sure. Yeah. I, I listen to pretty much the same stuff, uh, you know, throwing in the journeyman and refined by fire and all that grabs, but yeah, uh, same stuff. So, uh, thank you very much for your time, Sean. If you got anything else to throw to the listeners or, or myself, uh, please let me know. And for all those listening out there, please make sure you check out the make do podcast and, uh, give them a like and a listen as well.